Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. All right, good morning. (laughs) I know what I'm up against. Listen, it's a Labor Day weekend, and some of you, I suppose, were intimately involved in a football game that maybe didn't go your way last night. So I've got my work cut out for me, but I think I'm up to it. So let's go. Mark chapter 15. We are coming down to an end of our messages in the Gospel of Mark. We have four more, I think, Sundays in the Gospel of Mark. If you missed last weekend when Will did a fantastic job finishing up, Mark chapter 14, I encourage you to either listen to that on the internet or find a copy of the message on a CD out on the information desk. Today we're going to work our way through the first 20 verses of Mark 15. Before I do that, in just a moment I'd like to pray. And one thing I want us to pray for is, Reynolds prayed for the, just the volatile situation in our world in the Middle East. Let's continue to remember our soldiers that are currently involved in the conflict in Afghanistan. In fact, uh, just this last week, about 10 young men from Crosspoint that have been attending Crosspoint over the past year or so uh, just went to Afghanistan. And so let's remember to pray for uh, those brothers that, uh, that the Lord would give them protection, help them accomplish their mission, and that ultimately the Lord would use the political situation of nations to open up a door for the gospel in these these dark places. So we'll pray for that in, in just a moment. And also let's pray for for the Lord to speak to us in this text. Um, you know, I don't know, I, I must confess to you that this morning we're going to read about the condemning and the mocking and the leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus. And I confess to you that as I've been reading this text this week, my heart has felt a little disengaged and almost kind of, kind of cold. As I've read this text maybe, maybe hundreds of times before in my life and as I um, wrestle with just life and a busy week and pastoral ministry and wrestling with my own sin and failure as just a man and a husband and thinking about all of my responsibilities and then coming to this text which describes for us the moments leading up to the death of God the Son on the cross. I was um, taken aback at how, how long it took me this week to have my heart really engage in this truth. And I imagine that maybe some of you are in that same place. Uh, It just, the world life can get busy. And the most important thing in the entire universe can seem sort of like just a distant confession. And I pray today that, that ultimately we would just see Jesus. And that if you're a Christian, your affections would be stirred and your heart would be melted afresh. And your love for Christ would burn brighter. And if you are not yet a believer in Jesus, I pray that today, as Wayne led us in that confession, that ultimately the Holy Spirit would give you faith and that you would see Jesus. 
and that we would worship him together today. So let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, we come to you, um, we just come to you hurried, frazzled, busy, distracted people, confessing as we just sang in that song that, Lord, we need you. Without you, we would fall apart. Father, I pray that we would see Jesus in this text, that we would come face to face with our crucified, condemned, mocked, beautiful Savior who absorbed the punishment that should have been ours for those of us that are trusting in him. I pray that would renew our love and stir in us our affection for Jesus. And I pray for my friends in this room who are not yet trusting in Christ, that, Lord, you might use this beautiful passage to warm their hearts and give them eyes to see Jesus so that they might turn and trust in him. Lord, would you do that for your glory? And Lord, as we open up this Bible and freely, without fear of persecution, read your words, we think of the young soldiers from this church who have flown across the world just this week to be in harm's way. Lord, keep them safe. Bring them back soon. And we pray for open doors for the gospel in these dark places. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Mark 15, verse 1, before I start reading, um, have you ever just been really, really angry at somebody? Um, I, I run hot or cold. Um, may, maybe you've figured that out. I get excited. Um, I think that has its blessings. Um, I, I also, there's another side to my personality. I, I can get so mad sometimes that I can't see straight. Literally, like you know how your, your, your vision gets blurry because you're so mad. And I grew up as the younger brother of an older brother who relished in the role of being a tormentor. And there were times when I would get so mad at him that I quite literally could not see straight. In fact, one time when we were, I think, too young to be left unaccompanied for a weekend, I think I've told you this story before, my parents went away for the weekend and left just my brother and I, I think he was in a freshman in high school, I was in middle school, and uh, his friend was staying with us, his buddy Kevin Dorner, who he played football with all throughout his high school years, and um, they locked me in the bathroom over the entire weekend. They banished me to the bathroom. I slept on the cold tile floor of my parents' bathroom. They opened it up twice to give me food. Yeah, no, I feel sorry for me, really. I, I, I'm, and I've got some friends from my hometown here who know my brother, so when you go visit, please shame him with that story. I can remember sitting in that cold, hard, tiled bathroom so angry at my brother that I couldn't see straight. And I can remember vowing to myself as a young boy that when I did get out of that bathroom that I would never speak to my brother again. I can remember shortly or sometime around that same time period, that same brother, my only brother and his friend, made me so mad one summer afternoon that I went into my father's garage and got a ladder and found a mask that we had used for Halloween or something years before. It was a gorilla head mask. 
I put the gorilla head mask on my head and put the ladder in the backyard of my parents' house and sat on top of that ladder all day long as a protest to how angry I was at my brother. I was a strange child, yes. <laughs> but I was, I just was angry. I was so mad I couldn't see straight. I remember sometime, maybe about eight or nine years ago, the liberation of Iraq around that time, and I can remember this press conference vividly when these Iraqi reporters and Iraqi civilians that were freed finally from the tyranny of Saddam Hussein, and I can remember them being so angry that this reporter in this press conference, when there was this picture of Saddam Hussein, that he took off his shoe and threw it at this poster or picture of Saddam Hussein, and you'd see the civilian populace of Iraq doing the same thing. So angry that you could just grind your teeth at this poster of this murderous dictator. Do you realize that Jesus was more unpopular than Saddam Hussein at the end of his life? And that's what our text is this morning. The king condemned and mocked. My plan is to read through this text, and I want us to simply see the characters around the mocking and condemning of Jesus, the God-man, and, Lord willing, see ourselves, and then see Jesus and take refuge in that. Let's read verse 1, Mark 15. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. So we're still talking about the, the Jewish Sanhedrin, this, this sort of religious council that Will did such a great job last week describing the mock trial, the, really the illegal trial of the Jewish leaders and all of the errors, the illegalities of their trial of Jesus. And they have had this consultation, and then in verse 1 it says, continuing on, that they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Pilate was the Roman sort of provincial governor of the, the region there. So he was not Jewish, he was Gentile, he was Roman, and he was the, the sort of the mayor or the governor of this particular region. Verse 2, and Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. So what's going on here is you have these Jewish religious leaders finding Jesus uh, guilty according to their false mock trial and now bringing Jesus to the Roman authorities. So it, it's helpful for us to understand the political situation. Again, remember that the Jews at this time find themselves under captivity, under Roman rule, and Rome had taken away the power of the courts. They had taken away the, the power of the sword. They had taken away the power of the Jewish people to execute or really to try cases of capital punishment. And so these Jewish leaders 
who are seeing themselves as God's people rightly in the Old Testament and that this is their place, this is their land, now find themselves in this, this, this angst-producing scenario where they have to ask permission of the Roman governors to carry out the false trial and execution that they want to see happen of Jesus. So they're not only angry at Jesus, they're just angry at the, the situation that they find themselves in, that they have to bow down to this, to this foreign ruler to even ask to carry out their false justice. And it says that they accused him of many things there. If we read the account in Luke chapter 23, we read that they accused Jesus of misleading the nation. It's false. They accused Jesus, Jesus of forbidding to give tribute or to pay taxes to Caesar. That's false. In fact, remember a few months ago, Jesus actually told them the opposite. He said, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's and give, render unto the Lord what is the Lord's. And so Jesus did not say that you shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar. And then finally, they said that Jesus was proclaiming, proclaiming himself to be king. And they were saying that he was doing this in a sort of insurrection sort of way to overthrow to overthrow Rome. And so these Sanhedrin, these Jewish religious leaders are accusing him falsely and he is ultimately threatening their position and their power. So let's keep going in verse 4. And they've brought Jesus to this Roman governor, Pilate. Verse 4, And Pilate asked him, again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer. So Pilate was amazed. So Jesus, after answering that first question of Pilate, are you the king of the Jews? And saying, you've said so. In other words, yes. You've confessed it, and that's who I am. But then Pilate continues to ask him about these charges, and Jesus just keeps his mouth shut, as Kwame read from us for us from 1 Peter, and as we even sang about, that he... His mouth was silent before his accusers. And this is fulfilling prophecy in the Old Testament hundreds of years ago in Isaiah 53, verse 7, where Isaiah the prophet is seeing this picture of this suffering servant who ultimately is Jesus. And it says this about Jesus. It says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. So Jesus, the king, just take this in. I don't necessarily have a point or an application about this. Just to, I just want us to see this. The king and creator of the universe is being mocked and falsely accused by his creation and is about to die and yet has the restraint to not say anything, to ultimately condemn them for their actions. You know, I'm one of those little smart alecks. Again, I was a strange kid that sat on a ladder in my backyard. I was also a smart alecky little kid that, you know, whenever I heard something wrong, I just, you know, oh, 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 oh. And yet Jesus, the most powerful human who ever lived, God in the flesh, shows this incredible restraint. Just think of the restraint and the mercy of God to accomplish his redemptive purposes rather than open his mouth. Jesus, the strongest and the most in control and humblest man that has ever lived. Let's keep reading verse 6. 
Now at the feast, he, meaning Pilate, used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And that was just his way of quelling and sort of appeasing the crowd because ultimately Pilate had been given to be the governor over this area so that you know, he would kind of keep the order. And that was the way the Roman Empire would do things. They would conquer these lands and they would kind of let these people sort of live their life and have their culture. And they would put these governors over them to sort of manage the peace. And so Pilate is a good politician. He's sort of, to some degree, giving the people what they want. And so he had this custom during this feast when he would release a prisoner to the people, not because he had to, but this was just a, a political sort of move of his to, to, to keep the peace. And he came up with this custom. So verse 7, among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, verse 9, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? What a question. Pilate asks it for really all of humanity. What, what shall I do with this Jesus? And that's the question. That's the most important question that will ever be asked of any person in this room and any person that has ever lived. What will you do with Jesus? Pilate, in a sense, I, I sort of feel for him. He's... he's He's trying to keep the peace. He's conflicted about Jesus. He's wondering whether or not he can kind of appease, but yet he, he sees this, this blamelessness of Jesus. And oh, by the way, the other Gospels tell us that he has a couple other things weighing on his heart. One, in, in Matthew chapter 27, it tells us in verse 19 that his wife came to him during all of this is happening, and she says to him, hey, hey don't have anything to do with this righteous man, Jesus. I had a dream about him, and man, things are going to go badly if we I mean, don't, 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 don't mess with him. So he's got his wife telling him, stay away from this. And then we also see in Luke's account that Pilate was wanting to kind of wash his hands. He didn't want to be the guy that ultimately had to decide what to do with Jesus. And so he finds out that Jesus is from this region, Galilee, that Herod was actually in charge of. And so he tries to get another governor. He tries to sort of wash his hands of this. And, and listen, let me read this in Luke chapter 23, verse 6. A little bit more detail of what's going on here. When Pilate heard this, about Jesus, that he asked whether this man was a Galilean, verse 7, and when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. Now, let's remember who Herod was. Remember, Herod is the one who uh, was in that adulterous, sinful relationship with his brother's wife, and John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, earlier in the gospel, had preached against Herod's immorality, and it caused John the Baptist to get his head chopped off by this very same Herod. And so this Herod is familiar with who Jesus is because his cousin John was preaching the righteousness of Christ to him. And in fact, early on in the Gospel of Mark, it says that Herod wanted to kill Jesus. And oh, by the way, this is the Herod that is the son of what the Gospels call Herod the Great earlier in the Gospels that wanted to kill the baby Jesus. And so this is, I mean, this is not... Herod's first interaction with Jesus. 
And verse 8, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. I mean, this guy's so complex. He wants to kill Jesus at one point. He kills Jesus' cousin for preaching against his sinful relationship. But now in verse 8, this guy is so complex, so conflicted that in this instance, he's glad. Why? For he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him. And he was hoping to see some sign done by him. I mean, isn't that just, doesn't that just cause you to scratch your head? He wants him dead, kills his cousin, but oh, I, I kind of want to see you because you might be able to snap your fingers and make, you know, unicorns appear. I mean, it, it, uh, isn't that just speak to us about the complexity of the human soul? Like one minute we can long for God's power, but in the next moment we can despise it? Am I the only one that feels that way? Where's the guy that usually agrees with me over here? He's usually saying Amen. It's usually Scotty Hill. I don't know where he is. He's somewhere around here. Uh, Bill, thank you. So he questioned, verse 9, him at some length, but he made no answer. Verse 10, the chief priests in Luke 23, the chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. So just in a couple verses, Jesus, or Herod goes from treating Jesus like a circus monkey throwing a quarter at him, saying, dance, monkey, dance. And when Jesus won't fulfill his sort of genie-in-the-bottle wishes, now all of a sudden he's mad at him again. I mean, he's schizophrenic towards Jesus, just like me sometimes. Do this for me, Jesus! Ah! Why won't you act according to my wishes, wishes God? And so it leads Herod to, and his soldiers, verse 11, with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. So back to Mark chapter 15. We see Pilate, who's in this difficult spot. He's got his wife telling him, don't mess with this Jesus. He tries to hand Jesus over to Herod, and Herod sends him back after mocking and, and, and mistreating Jesus. And so the ball is back in Pilate's court, and he's got these religious leaders who are stirring up this crowd. Now let's think about this crowd of people that are, that are, that are about to cry out, crucify him. It's popular in sort of Christian sort of preaching, you know, circles, to link this crowd of people with the crowd of people just a week earlier. I mean, it's been a couple months since we were there in the scriptures, but just a week earlier in Mark chapter 11 during Jesus' triumphal entry, remember that, when he's riding on the donkey into Jerusalem for this week of the Passover, and all of these people, this crowd is crying, Hosanna, Hosanna. So, just a week earlier, there's this crowd of people crying, praise him, Hosanna. And then just now, a week later, we see a crowd saying, crucify him. And it's sort of maybe a popular sort of link to say that, look, this same crowd, there's nothing in the Bible that where we can point to and say this is exactly the same people. But I think that that might be a worthy thing to speculate about, that the crowd a week ago is saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then a week later, there's a crowd of people saying, crucify him. 
And just think about people in that crowd. Just think about people as they sort of find themselves in a group environment. Just the lowest common denominator takes over. Just think about the thoughtlessness of the people in that crowd. They're just there for a feast. You know, they're just there for the time when Pilate gives somebody back to them and the chief priests and these religious leaders who have an agenda are stirring up the crowd, causing people to see things wrongly. And there's people that are just kind of going along with the group mentality. Yeah, 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 crucify him, crucify him. I've noticed something about my my heart is that when I just sort of put it in autopilot and let myself just be informed by the culture around me, I can just sort of take on wrong mindsets. You know, if I, if I just watch too much, you know, talking heads on TV or I listen to too much radio, you know, I can just kind of, yeah, I can just become sort of the grumpy yeah, vote him out of office. We should do this. America stinks. The sky's falling. It's been downhill since President Eisenhower. I can just kind of become a grumpy, sort of lowest common denominator mentality sort of groupthink. And I, I think that to some degree that's happening here. But here's the thing, friend. That here's the thing is that doesn't excuse this crowd, does it? It doesn't excuse them. Because they are maybe drifting through the week thoughtlessly, not considering who Jesus is, they find themselves in a position where they are allowing themselves to be led astray by these false teachers with an agenda, and they become the very ones who cry out, crucify him. And that's what it says in verse 13. And they cried together, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. Verse 15, so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd. Again, Pilate is not, obviously not, not innocent in this either, giving in to the opinion of the crowd, released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus. And that scourge doesn't mean they just sort of washed him down with a rough sponge. It means that they beat him with a leather whip that on the end of that leather whip there would be little shards of bone and metal. And in fact, many people who were being crucified in this day the scourging was a preparation for their crucifixion on a cross. And many people actually died even during the scourging. So having scourged Jesus, he delivered him over to be crucified. In fact, I think that the, that the, that the center of this text, the most important sentence in this passage is verse 15. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And so Jesus becomes a substitute for Barabbas. Barabbas, the one who truly was guilty, goes free. And Jesus, the one who is innocent, is found guilty. Friends, that is a picture of what happens on the cross. We are like Barabbas. 
We are the ones who are truly guilty. Jesus is innocent. And there is this exchange, this substitution where God substitutes himself for us, the condemned criminal, and we go free when we trust in Jesus. Let's keep reading in verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. A couple things there. In John 18, John's accounting of this mocking and condemning of Jesus, it says that the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, wouldn't follow uh, Jesus into Pilate's headquarters there, the governor's headquarters, lest they defile themselves because there was this law that the Jewish people couldn't enter into this Gentile place because it would be a defilement, especially during this week when they're needing to be holy. And so just think of the irony of it all. Think about how, I mean, just how this dead religion is trumping true grace here. They, they, they didn't want to be defiled by walking into the governor's palace while they're handing over the one who truly is the Lamb of God, who is the only one who can take away defilement. I mean, think about just all the crazy little religious things we do, and then we just completely miss the true, the true heart of the gospel. You know, I can remember years ago when I was in college, and there was this old guy, and we had this church, and there was this kid coming, and he was dressed maybe not quite like would have been appropriate in that church and was wearing a hat inside the building. And if you're wearing a hat in here, by the way, there's no problem, whatever, I'm not pointing out to you. But this guy was at the back of the building and he was just incensed, like, oh, who's going to handle this pastor? Are you going to tell this young man to take his hat off? You know, just, I mean, he was just having a conniption fit because this kid wasn't like, you know, adhering to the, to the code of how you should comport yourself in this, this, this church building. All the while missing the true heart of the gospel to open up this kid's heart who just happened to wander into this church to, Lord willing, find Jesus. And I, I kind of find myself, like I see a little bit of myself in the Sanhedrin. You know, I just, I, I, I want to I magnify this this wrong perception of things that make me feel good about myself when I completely miss the point of what God is trying to do in my life or somebody else's life. Is anybody else tracking with that or is anybody else convicted by this? I mean, I, I see one or two of you like, yeah, yeah. And the rest of you are like, no. it's Labor Day, bro. <laughs> All right. And they called together, verse 16, the whole battalion. That's about 600 men for one guy. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they, meaning these soldiers, this battalion of 600 men were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. Now, I have spent some time in an infantry battalion, and I know just how sort of base and, uh, well, let's just call it sinful those environments can be. And I also know how, like, the broken exercise of male masculinity 
Like, can you imagine, I mean, these 600 men thinking that they're the epitome of toughness, mocking their very creator. Again, this group mentality takes over. And Jesus, the epitome of manhood and restraint and gentleness and power and authority and meekness and grace, contrasted with the foolish, broken strength of these soldiers mocking their very creator. Verse 20, And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. So before I give you just three words that I think this text teaches us, let's just look again at these characters. We see the, the Sanhedrin who were threatened by Jesus' upheaval of their religious paradigm, which caused them to receive glory rather than God. They were threatened by Jesus. We see Pilate and Herod who were confused by Jesus, who were entrapped by their sin and their selfishness and their political power and they missed Jesus and condemned him and mocked him. We see this crowd of people, which is, this is probably most likely where us in this room would have been if we were in this story. We see this crowd of people who are so easily led astray by self-serving glory thieves and religious leaders who have their own agenda. We see the soldiers who are a broken display of strength and masculinity, mocking the very epitome of masculinity. And we see ourselves in all of these people, but ultimately we see Barabbas, the murderous insurgent who is guilty, who Jesus substitutes himself for, I think we should see ourselves most in Barabbas because Jesus substitutes himself for Barabbas and takes Barabbas' punishment. So three words, and then we end with this, and then we'll receive communion together as a, a church family. I think this text should produce in us humility. I think it should produce in us confidence, and I think it should produce in us clarity. First, it should produce humility. As I read through this text, I see a little bit of myself in each one of these people, these people groups, the Sanhedrin, Pilate, and Herod, and the crowd, and the soldiers, and ultimately, I see myself in Barabbas. It should produce in me a seriousness about sin that God in the flesh, Jesus, the perfect God-man, had to die for my sin, that the sin of his people was so great that it didn't require just another sacrifice of animals or good works, but it required literally the death of God in the flesh himself. This should cause me to take my rebellion and my sin very serious, and it should cause me to take God's holiness and righteousness very serious. And I need, like I need, like I spoke about a couple weeks ago, I need that ammonia, I need that smelling salt of the beauty and the holiness and the splendor of God week after week after week because it is my default mode to minimize my sin. And I need to be humbled again as I see my Savior 
mocked and condemned. But even as it produces humility in us, it should produce in us confidence that my right standing, your right standing, if we are trusting in Christ, does not depend on us and our righteousness, but Jesus' righteousness. The beautiful thing about the Bible, it is ultimately not a, a, a compilation of good examples that we should be like this guy or that guy. It is a compilation of failures that point to our failure, that point us outside of ourselves towards the only man who succeeded, the man, Christ Jesus. And so when I look at the Sanhedrin and how I'm like them, and when I look at Pilate and Herod and how I'm like them, and how I look at the crowd and how I'm like them, and the soldiers and I'm like them, and ultimately I am the murderous insurgent like Barabbas, but it pleases God to save failures like these people and whoever will trust in Him and not themselves. And... When I gaze at Jesus, the perfect righteous God-man, who alone could satisfy the punishment, it gives me confidence that my right standing with God has been perfected because of Jesus' perfect sacrifice. Therefore, my guilt, my condemnation, if I'm trusting in Christ, is secure and it is etched in heaven. And so it's not Jesus' righteousness plus a little bit of mine. It's Jesus has won. He has accomplished. He has made me right when I trust in Him. And then finally, clarity. And, and this, this is such an important truth for us to realize. It is a clarifying passage for me because it reminds me that the only hope for humanity is the God-man, Christ Jesus. The Bible is very clear that he is the only way to God and that our only hope is in trusting in him and his righteousness, not trusting in ourselves. Let me just ask you if you are not considering yourself to be a believer in Jesus, or you're just investigating Christianity, or you're just, you're just um, thinking about it, and you're wondering how it could be. It seems, sort of, it seems sort of maybe unfair of God to make Jesus and his work on the cross the only way. I, I understand that argument, and I, I, I actually used to think that way, that how could God just require us to just to think about Jesus as being the only way? What about all of these other good people out here who are kind of doing good stuff. Well, let me challenge that line of thinking with a couple thoughts. One is that if we go with your line of thinking that, well, shouldn't, you know, some good people over here that maybe aren't trusting in Jesus, shouldn't, shouldn't they kind of be all right and kind of make it to heaven or whatever you want to call it after they die? Well, let's, let's look at that. When is good good enough? Like, when does their... When does enough good work satisfy sort of this standard of morality that sort of makes you right with the holy God creator? I mean, at some, there's a point there somewhere. And, you know, I, when I used to think that way before I became a Christian, 
I just conveniently always had myself just a little bit on the right side of the ledger, you know? What about the guy on, that just didn't do enough? Like he didn't, you know, like that one summer, man, he was home from college and, you know, he could have helped that old lady with his groceries and that would have just put him over the edge, but he didn't. He stayed home and played Call of Duty. Oh, man. Sorry, bro. One more little pebble in your rock pile, you'd have been there. But I made it. See, I mean, you see the, the sort of the unfairness of the, of the arbitrariness of human works? And then, and then another line of thinking is, is that, well, but, but yeah, but I mean, okay, let's not even think about how good people are. Not, let's just think about just human goodness. I mean, look, I'm a basically a good guy. You know, and I've used this analogy before in the last couple months or so. Just think about a good guy. Let's talk about human goodness. Think about a young man who was raised by good parents. This young man is sent to the right schools. He has everything provided for him. His parents nurture him and love him, serve him. He grows up. He gets a good education. He goes away to some Ivy League school. His parents pay for it. They um, send him to this college. He gets a great degree, and right out of college, he gets a great job in Wall Street making a whole bunch of money. And with all of this money and his new job in Wall Street, he starts to do all of these good things, right? He starts to, you know, send money to, you know, nonprofit organizations and care for the poor. But he never calls his parents, right? He does all of these seemingly good things, but he never, like, he never even says thank you. Like, his parents call him, and he refuses, like, his mom, he sees mom on the caller ID, click, ignore, swipes it, ignore, boom. Just, no, not talking to mom. And he just continues to do all these good things, but he never, he never returns to the source of the good things, which is his parents. Now, we wouldn't call that good, right? We would call that an ungrateful jerk who needs to call his mom, right? Because goodness only finds its fountain, its, its, its foundation in the source of its goodness, and in this case, it's the parents. So the young man who refuses to acknowledge his parents' grace to him, even though he's doing seemingly good things, his goodness is undercut by his ungratefulness. Simultaneously, friends, there is no good apart from the fountain of good, which is God. And so when we look to Jesus, when we look to God, when we look to our Creator, and we realize that only good, our good, our righteousness can only come from Him, and because of trusting in Him, we are now made right, and we look back now with the rest of our lives in grateful response to his goodness, that's the fountain, that's the foundation, that's the source of all true goodness. And that's the call of the gospel to bring clarity to that grace of Jesus, to not make it based on my righteousness, but to make it based on his. Have you considered that, friend? And if you consider yourself not to be a Christian, I'm grateful that you're here, and I would ask you to consider this king mocked and condemned for all who will call upon him. Does that answer all of your questions? I'm not so arrogant to think it does. I know that there are a thousand more. 
But friends, don't wait for all of your questions to be answered before you look to and consider Jesus. Would you do that even now? Would you look at this beautiful picture of the Creator condemned by His creation out of love to do what they could not do, satisfy the holiness of God so that they might be made right with Him? Would you consider that even now? In just a moment, we're going to receive communion as a church family. If you are a Christian, if you're a believer in Jesus, if you believe in the gospel that we preach here at this church, you're welcome to come to this table and receive communion with us. The bread represents Jesus' body that was broken on the cross. The juice represents his blood that was spilled for us. If you are a Christian, you're welcome to come and trust in this meal, to partake in this meal with us. If you're not yet a Christian, we ask that you not receive this meal, not because we're trying to shun you or embarrass you or any way. We're actually trying to serve you by not making you confess something that you don't yet believe. We don't want to make you a hypocrite. And this meal, this, this communion table is not just a ritual. It's a confession where Christians are saying that I am putting my hope in what Jesus has done on the cross for me in his death and his burial and his resurrection as my only hope for right standing with a holy creator God. If you're not there yet, if you don't believe that yet, we are so thankful that you're here. We want you to continue to come. We'll have discussions with you. We'll answer questions with you. We want you to continue to come and gather with us. But we don't want to cause you to confess that truth if you don't yet believe it. And so there will be ample opportunity. People will be up and moving. Nobody's going to judge you if you stay there. And, and likewise, if you're a Christian and you need to examine your life and not just kind of get caught up in the flow and you need to repent of some sin and you need to examine your heart, take the time to do that. And then when you are ready, come to this table and receive the bread and the juice. And then after the worship team leads us in some songs. Reynolds will come and lead us to receive these elements together. And as we take these elements symbolizing Jesus' body and blood, let's gaze upon the condemned and mocked and crucified King. And let's find our confidence there. Let me pray. Father, as we come now to your table, Our hearts, as we confessed at the beginning, are tattered, confused, conflicted, distracted, self-absorbed, tired, broken-hearted, sad, lusting after all the wrong things at times, feeble, weak, and wounded. But yet there is grace and confidence and satisfaction at the cross. So, Father, as we come to this table, nourish the souls of your people as we gaze upon Jesus. And for my friends that are in this room that are not yet trusting in Christ, God, would you, would you cause them to consider Jesus and would you open up their eyes so that they would see him? that they might trust in Jesus 
today as well. Lord, would you do these things for our joy and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.